Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. Today, we're talking about social and emotional learning, SEL for short. We know that more and more children are struggling with mental health issues, especially during the pandemic. How can we help them not only survive, but thrive? Dr. Amanda Alexander and Dr. Jose Paez are here to explain the ways that SEL can help children connect with others, how literacy can provide a way for kids to tell their own stories, and how families can cope with the higher levels of stress and anxiety that many of us are feeling. Dr. Alexander is the Chief Academic Officer at Scholastic, and Dr. Paez is a Clinical Fellow at the Yale Child Study Center. They are part of the Yale Child Study Center Scholastic Collaborative, a partnership that arose from a shared commitment to exploring how literacy can be used to foster resilience and wellness among children and families. Hi, Amanda and Jose. Welcome to the program. Hey, Suzanne. Hey, Suzanne. Thank you for having us. Let's start with you, Amanda. Tell us about your role at Scholastic. I have the proud honor of serving as the Chief Academic Officer at Scholastic. And in this role, I lead three primary work streams. The first is the work of the research and validation team. And the RNV team is essentially charged with ensuring the efficacy of our products. We do this by first making sure that there's a strong research foundation that informs the development of our products. And then once our products are in use in schools and communities, we partner with external research firms to conduct rigorous studies to determine their impact on student achievement outcomes. The second scope of my work includes professional learning. And the professional learning team provides PD services to educators to build their capacity to support the academic and social growth of students. And then the last part of my work is with the Yale Child Study Center Scholastic Collaborative for Child and Family Resilience. And uh, the collaborative works to advance research and contribute to the development of resources, programs, and curriculum that improve academic and health outcomes for children, their families, and communities. So that's my role at Scholastic in a nutshell. No, no pressure to succeed. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa, that is a mouthful. (laughs) Okay, Jose, so I can feel even worse about myself. (laughs) Can you describe your work at the Yale Child Study Center? Of course. Yeah. Thank you again for having us here. It's wonderful to share the stage with you guys and talk about the very important topics today. So a little bit about myself. I'm a board certified adult psychiatrist, and I am currently in my last year of training as a child, child and adolescent psychiatry fellow at the Yale Child Study Center. And then I'll be staying on as faculty come July. And I'm currently serving as one of the chief residents or chief fellows in the program. Fantastic. So you will bring a lot of insights as well today, which is wonderful. Amanda, as you know, there are misconceptions about SEL, which is a big topic for us today. It's short, of course, for social and emotional learning. 
There are also criticisms. People say that SEL is counterproductive and or ineffective. What is SEL in your mind and how do you see it benefiting children? When defining SEL, I think it's best to turn to the work of CASEL, the Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning. And they say SEL is an integral part of education and human development, of course, because learning is a social and emotional process. So CASEL defines SEL as the process through which all young people and adults acquire and apply the knowledge, skills, and attitudes to develop healthy identities, manage emotions, and achieve personal and collective goals. Also to feel and show empathy for others, establish and maintain supportive relationships, and make responsible and caring decisions. Castle's framework has five competencies, and they are self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, relationship skills, and responsible decision-making. So that is essentially, I think, the best definition (laughs) of what SEL is. And of course, all of those five competencies benefit not only children, but adults as well in the classroom, in homes, and in the communities. Isn't it important for us to all be aware of ourselves, to be able to manage our emotions, to engage with others, and to make sound decisions? So, of course, who can argue against those things not benefiting children? And again, as I said before, adults. Absolutely. And Jose, how do you define SEL? I think I'd be remiss to say that I had a better definition than the people at Castle who've been doing this and really advocating for this work and um, defending it against uh, the large amounts of criticism. I agree with Amanda. This is, this, these skills aren't just necessary for children. These skills are needed across the board for adults as well. And I, th- and I would go as far as saying that it extends the wealth of the school. I think those are things that are needed in our society as a whole. I think we certainly see (laughs) a need, a crying need everywhere. Jose, you've also had a great deal of experience in schools with families. What are some of the most effective practices or ways that SEL can be implemented, do you think, that really benefit children and families? In my experience, I think that versus using the nomenclature of, of SEL, I think that we've been doing this for a long time in the schools. You know, it's trying to treating the whole child and, and, and really being attentive to the equity uh, that we can provide for each family, kind of meeting the families where they are, not only just physically, but also emotionally. So I think that doing that and continuing to do that work, I, I think we, we live in a, in, a, in a time of catchphrases and I think SEL became the latest catchphrase, but I think at the core, The work has been done. We've been doing it for a while in schools. Interesting. And Amanda, you know that for sure. Before coming to Scholastic, you were chancellor of the D.C. public schools. I wonder if you could tell us about some of the innovative ways you saw teachers supporting children's mental health needs. You know, I've seen great examples, not only in D.C. public schools, but at schools really all across the the country. You know, I think SEL intending to the mental health needs of kids 
is done best when it's integrated into the curriculum and daily activities and not necessarily a standalone. And, you know, I think it starts even when students first enter the building. They can be greeted in a special way from adults, unique handshakes and hugs and ways to connect with them. I'm sure many folks have seen the TikTok videos that have went viral of teachers greeting each student at the door. It's important for adults to convey to kids that that you matter. I see you. I'm glad you came to school today. You're a valued member of our community. I'm reminded of the show Cheers and the theme song. Sometimes you want to go. I'm not going to (laughs) sing. It's okay. Where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came. That's that's Mm -hmm. what we all want. I also think about examples that I've seen in in the literacy space and literacy-based advisory periods for older students at the secondary level and essentially leveraging books that are relevant to today's social issues or even some of the content of, might I put a plug for Scholastic's 30 plus awesome magazines to engage in conversations with kids. Other things include journaling periods where kids get to write down and express their thoughts in a personal journal and even classroom meetings at the beginning and end of the day, I think are also great examples. Speaking of literacy, I'd love for you both to talk about this. How can literacy, whether it's reading, writing, or storytelling, provide a way for children to develop self-confidence and a sense of worth and well-being? You know how we used to say, oh, there's an app for that. (laughs) As a kindergarten teacher, I think there's a book for that. (laughs) Oh, And, um, you know, Suzanne, that I began my career as a kindergarten teacher. So read-alouds are my thing. And I think it's time for a read aloud to essentially answer this question. The book I want to read aloud really quickly is The Way I Feel by Jan and Kane. And it's a scholastic book. And it was actually given to me by a scholastic colleague and dear friend, Kimber Pennington, when I worked in D.C. public schools and she knew that we had a focus on SEL. So thanks, Kimber, for this book. It's become a really important part of my personal and professional life. The Way I Feel by Jan and Kane. Silly. Silly is the way I feel when I make a funny face and wear a goofy, poofy hat that takes up lots and lots of space. Scared. Scared. I'm shaking because I'm scared all alone in the dark at night. The thunder and lightning crash and roar. Hold me close. Turn on the light. Disappointed. Plans were made so long ago for you to visit me today, but now you can't come after all. I'm disappointed. And I'm not going to read the rest of the book, but I think you get the sense that this is a text that goes through a range of emotions. There are beautiful illustrations to go along with the words on the page. And they really just essentially provide an opportunity for the reader or the listener 
to think about these emotions and how they may or may not relate to what he or she is experiencing at a particular time. I see books being leveraged in that way. Yes, that's really a great example. We know that children don't come into school in the morning as blank slates. They may have not slept well. There may have been a family argument or they may be happy about an upcoming birthday. Anything is possible and we want them to feel included like their feelings matter and can be channeled as they go through their school day and learning. Yeah. And you can see, you know, could you imagine a discussion about emotions that a, that a teacher could lead during or after the reading of this book or any book? It's pretty powerful. It really is. And on this subject of reading and books, how does the collaborative between Scholastic and Yale help further this literacy mission? Both Yale and Scholastic see a clear intersection between literacy and mental health, mental well-being. And talking about books are definitely a natural way to engage with your emotions and problem solve. And SEL ultimately is about helping children and adults regulate and articulate emotions. And books are, I think, the perfect medium uh, to allow for this to happen. Children and adults can talk about and process their feelings through the characters in books without always necessarily making themselves the object of inquiry, which is sometimes a little scary and makes us not even want to engage. So by looking at this character in this book, you're not necessarily saying, oh, right now I'm having a problem, but leveraging the character to express thoughts and feelings makes it easier. I see that as part of the mission of of the Scholastic Yale Collaborative. And then, of course, all of the research behind that. There are so many smart people at Yale, like Jose, and we see opportunities to collaborate and engage in research and, and share that research with the broader field, the practitioners in the field. And Jose, what about you? Could you tell us about your own experiences in your practice? Yes, of course. Thank you. So I think just to add on what to Amanda was saying, I think the concept of literacy can be translated also into emotional literacy, helping kids put words to emotions. And I think books are, are, are a great avenue to do that. That in mind also, it'll, books allow us, allow the parents and, and patients to take the work home. And it doesn't just have to be limited to our therapy sessions or the stuff that happens within the offices at the Yale Child Study Center. We can touch on subjects and topics that then the parents and the children or the caretakers can take home and continue to work just like Amanda said, you know, kind of channeling their emotions through the book and the characters in the book. So it allows for a continuation of the therapy and the work that we do at the Child Study Center. Jose, I'm wondering in your practice and in the therapy you do with children and families, what are some of the things that have surprised you most that you never would have expected, let's say 10 years ago? I think there's a lot of things that are surprising just because of the climate that we're in. I find myself talking about things such as race and gender identity and sexual orientation a lot more openly and a lot more frequently during my sessions with children and parents alike. So that's something that's a, that's a stark difference from just not even 10 years. So it's at five years ago, these conversations weren't really had out in the open. It was more of a, of a, of a silent struggle that, was, that wasn't brought into to a lot of the therapy sessions. And I think that's changing. 
That's so interesting. Why are representation, why are positive representation and accurate accounts of history so vital for the well-being of all children, especially those who are marginalized? This is for both of you. I would say that I think the biggest thing for us to take away is that the facts are the facts. I come from a colonized country and you can't refute colonizations and in, in the practice of colonization and slavery, there's oppressors and there's victims. And I think that, that that's a fact. Going back to what I said earlier, I think a lot of these things were always present, but now a lot of people are being forced to atone and to see them in their everyday lives. People were living in a, in a very pleasant ignorance up until very recently with the death of Mr. Floyd and really made people analyze and reevaluate the state of affairs. I love that phrase, Jose, pleasant ignorance. These are all sensitive topics, but the bottom line is that America is a democracy. And in a democracy, it's important for citizens to be educated. And we learn by reading books and forming our own opinions about matters and events in the past. That level of interpretation and judgment belongs to the reader as an individual in a democracy. And so the taking away of books essentially stops that process of, of happening. Look, we all have different political views, but I think we can all agree that, I hope at least, <laughs> all human beings have the right to be loved and to be treated with respect no matter what their race, creed, or sexual orientation is. They also deserve to see themselves equally represented in books, especially children. And they need their stories to be told to them in books. And this is really about inclusivity. And I'm proud of Scholastic's inclusive stance on this, this matter. I imagine you both could speak to the fact of having young children be exposed to these ideas and concepts. I think that's a big sticking point with the legislation and with the debates that maybe adults or politicians don't see children as capable of empathy and understanding. I wonder what you would say to that argument. I think children are capable. Jose is the medical professional, so he can probably speak to this better than I can, but I will say that I think at the youngest of, of ages, children are capable. And I think it's important for parents and adults to actually take the lead and help kids understand these difficult processes. And the truth of the matter is, with all of the social media out there now, kids will find out things on their own and learn and form their own opinions. And sometimes they are ill-informed opinions. So I think it's incumbent upon adults to take the lead here and help children learn the truth in ways that, of, of course, are developmentally appropriate. Young children should not be exposed to violence or themes that aren't developmentally appropriate, that they would have trouble processing. No one is saying that, but we're, we're talking about being smart about the ways in which we introduce children to these sensitive topics. It seems to me, having grown up at a time when these issues weren't discussed, that this also could cut down 
on the bullying and the vicious name calling that I saw and experienced during my childhood. I would agree with you, Suzanne. The more open we are about certain topics, the more palatable they become to our ears. And I think what's happening now, I like to use the iceberg analogy, right? We only see the tip, we don't see the rest of the iceberg. Even children, just as adults, have internal lives. And if they don't have the right words or the right, they don't have the literacy to talk about what that looks like, what their internal life looks like with adults, then that can morph and be influenced by a million things, like Amanda said, social media, peer peer groups, and other other things like that. So I think it's it's only to, to the benefit of society as a whole, I think, to have the right words to use to identify emotions and to be able to talk about that internal life and how that's affecting you and affecting your surroundings. I wonder, have you noticed any shifts in the approach to SEL during the pandemic or what shifts, if there are any shifts you would like to see going forward? I think the shift is more a broader acknowledgement of the fact that SEL is important for all of us, again, adults and children alike. I think prior to the pandemic, this wasn't necessarily the case, but the pandemic uh, just made it so real for everyone across racial lines, across social economic status. Folks were dealing with a lot and realized that we needed to tend to our mental health and well-being. And I think the acknowledgement has led to meaningful conversations among educators and parents about the needs of our children. I think the end product is just them being more intentional about how the school day is even structured, as one example. We now see room being made for a balance of academic time and socialization time, and you see cool-out sections in a classroom and mindfulness activities, I think, in ways that we didn't see before. So I think this was definitely a silver lining in all of this, in this pandemic. You remind me how much this is needed. I'm also, in addition to hosting the podcast, I'm editor of Scholastic Kids Press, and we have 36 students around the world who report news for our young readers. And many kids are writing about the phenomenon of leaving virtual schooling and going back into the classroom and how kids who have been at home and isolated for months don't really have the language or the empathy to communicate. And they're really struggling to be able to speak up in class and to make their voices heard. They're withdrawn. This is the... (laughs) This is the reporting I'm getting from my yeah, students. No, no, it's anecdotal, but I'm, I'm hearing the same, especially with third graders now, because this is their first time in school, because when the pandemic hit, they were in kindergarten. They missed out on a lot of early socialization building activities. I'll go a little bit further. I'll say hey, I work at a school-based mental health clinic in, in an elementary school um, in a district close to the university. Um, and I've seen it firsthand. There's kids that, you know, with selective mutism that have tremendous regressions in their social abilities. Kids on the autism spectrum have also had tremendous regressions in the progress they had made prior to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. it, it's had a profound infa- impact. And 
the, the, the level of the stress in the parents also increases because this is progress that was made that is seemingly lost. How can we help the parents? I follow moms on social media and especially families who have children with autism, not just the isolation, but the disruptions. Okay, they're home one week, you know, they're in school one week and then someone tests positive for COVID and the child is sent home and it's just a vicious cycle. How can we help the parents who are home? They're not in the classroom with their children, but how can we extend that SEL love (laughs) to them too? It's definitely a challenge to just cope with all of the stress and, and trauma that folks have experienced these past two years. But the teacher in me and the scholastic employee in me says, first, read. <laughs> read a book. We talked about books and, and how they help with the processing of feelings and emotions. Read together. I also think it makes sense to find physical activities to do together. Jose, you're the medical expert here, but exercise relieves stress, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. Big time. So go for a walk out. Go for a hike in the park. I don't know. Kick a soccer ball, throw a frisbee, dancing, you know, get moving, moving, right? And then I think the last thing is just talk, talk, talk. Talk to your kids. Talk with other adults. Exchange ideas and and tips and, and best practices. But I think talking matters too. Just to jump on what Amanda said with the the reading part, I think teachers use books in schools. And I think increasing the collaboration between parents and teachers and kind of mimicking the books that the school has that the parents may be, may be able to get their hands on at home, the storybooks, so that, that everybody can be on the same page and we can have a unified message for, for the children. I think that's a, to, and to decrease the disruption between school and home. I love the idea of, of folks reading the same books and and talking about them across home and school. Yes. Uh, Yeah, I love that and seen it done. So that's a great suggestion. I have one final question. I'll start with you, Amanda, since you oversee research and validation here at Scholastic. What do you see as the next frontier for SEL and where should educators be putting their focus? I think if we agree SEL is crucial, how can we advance the quality of professional learning, instruction, and assessment. It's important to note that I think about where we are on this trajectory of SEL. So we've defined it, right? We know what it is. And so now I think the time is for more attention on efficacy studies and looking at what's happening, where it's being implemented. Ultimately, I want to see SEL built into more core curricula. I think a focus on the evaluation of SEL in core curriculum is a great next step. And I think this will ultimately inform, at the very least, what we do for teachers in terms of of PD. Jose, what about you? Is there anything else you'd like to add about research and validation and what you see in the future for SEL? What Amanda was saying about the research and having the efficacy studies will add to to the credence that the SEL is something that we need and something that is vital, not only just for school, but also for, for development as a whole. And I think with, with as, as the numbers come out and about the efficacy of the programs, 
we'll get more buy-in from the, the school districts and in turn can affect policy and influence implementation on a more granular level. We'd love to have both of you back again and give us an update on this field because it is so crucial for children's development. And we loved hearing from you today. Thank you so much. Thanks, Suzanne. Thank you. My great thanks again to Dr. Amanda Alexander and Dr. Jose Paez for joining me today. And thank you for listening. To learn more about social and emotional learning and for resources, check the show notes or go to scholastic.com slash podcast. Special thanks to producer Bridget Benjamin, associate producer Constance Gibbs, sound engineer Daniel Jordan, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time.